my name is Kendra Winchester, and this is Reading Women, a podcast inviting you to reclaim half the bookshelf by discussing books written by or about women. Today, I'm talking to Waya Moore, the author of The Dragons, The Giant, The Women, and Memoir, which is out now from Grey Wolf Press. For a full transcript of this episode, you can check out the show notes or go to readingwomenpodcast.com. And make sure you are subscribed so you don't miss a single episode. So Wyatu Moore's debut novel, She Would Be King, came out from Grey Wolf Press a couple years ago, and it really engaged with this conversation that a lot of different authors have been having about how we here in the West view anything as fantastical as magical realism, when for many authors, uh, these fantastical elements are more about uh, their cultural heritage and that storytelling tradition. So I will link some interviews down the show notes of interviews that Wyatu has done with um, different outlets and the conversation that she had that I found very informative and uh, she's just so well-spoken. Uh, so this, though, is her memoir. And when I found out she was writing a memoir about her family's experience uh, fleeing Liberia during the Civil War and immigrating to the United States, I was so excited uh, because She's such a beautiful writer, and she's so thoughtful in what she puts out, and so I knew it would be amazing, and it definitely is. This book that we're talking about today is The Dragons, the Giant, the Women, and it's this memoir in three parts about her life as a young girl. Then in the middle part, you have her life as, you know, growing up in the United States and her life as an adult woman. And then the last part, I won't tell you what's it about because that would be a spoiler, but I loved this book and it really had me glued to my seat the entire time that I was listening to it. So a little bit about Wyatt too before we get started. She, as I said, published She Would Be King and it received so many different accolades and honors, including uh, being a finalist for the Hurston Wright Award, being a BEA Buzz Panel book. It was also chosen for Sarah Jessica Parker's book club and uh, so many other amazing accolades. Uh, Y2More is also the founder of One More Book, a nonprofit organization that curates and distributes culturally relevant books for underrepresented readers. And uh, she's also had pieces come out in the New York Times, the Paris Review, Guernica, the Atlantic Magazine, and so many other publications. So she is well-established and very prolific. So as you can tell, I adored this book, so I will quit gushing. And without further ado, here is my conversation with Wyatu Moore. All right. Well, welcome to the podcast, Wyatu. I'm so excited to have you on. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. I really loved your debut, uh, She Would Be King, and it's actually one of our most, uh, I I have a blind book date situation for our podcast over in our Etsy store, and it's actually one of the books that I send people the most because it's a beautiful novel. Uh, This time you're back, though, with a memoir. What has it been like switching from fiction to writing something much, I mean, it's a totally different genre? Yeah. Um, so I, I, I wrote both of them simultaneously. Um, I was, while I was writing the novel, I was writing and of course living the memoir. And then during the editing phase of, of the memoir, I was, I was still working on, um, the end bits of the novel. And, and this is like the memoir first draft I should, I should say, because 
obviously subsequent drafts were, were done after the novel came out, but, but because I was working on them simultaneously, I can't, I can't say that there, there was a dramatic difference, um, in the craft portion. I, I think that what, what really stuck out to me, um, is one, the obvious restraint and fear and anxiety that would come from creating characters out of people, you know, and your family members and yourself, um, and how incredibly intimate it is to sort of dissect your own characteristics and habits and the ways that you would a character in a novel. Um, that was startling, definitely like a stunning experience. But in addition to the, the shock of, of, making characters out of people in my real life. I would say the only other sort of fear was, was making sure that I was representing my, my family and my parents in, in the right way, because I do understand that it took a, an incredible amount of, of trust for them, especially my mother to, to let me tell our story. And so I, I wanted to make sure that I was maintaining the integrity of everything that we had been through yeah, so that's obviously not not the train of thought I have when writing a novel. It's like, how am I maintaining the integrity of my parents? Which I mean, actually, maybe it is because, <laughs> as, like, as from an old fashioned home or from a Liberian home, I'm always for a long time I did feel like I was writing with my parents over my shoulders, like you know, because they would be reading it, their friends would be reading it. But yeah, I mean, this is exponentially more for the memoir. Um, so so yeah, those are the differences. I love the way that you put it, how you're telling our story. And that is very much a story of your family because um, and very much in the memoir, you explore how your family and the experiences that you had shaped who you are as an adult. And in the book, uh, we start at the first section is your childhood during Liberia's civil war. And you mentioned different places that you know, written history suggests that this war erupted from the ethnic tensions between the descendants of resettled African-Americans and indigenous groups. But your memoir dispels that with revelations of a more dynamic tensions among groups in the country. So as you were writing the book and you were thinking about it, for you, what has contributed to the settler indigenous narrative and why do you believe it is so prevalent? Yeah, gosh, so that I think... Um what happens in any society is that there's there's going to be some system of social stratification, right? And in Liberia's case, and in you know any other country that has that is homogenous and everyone is to some extent the same race um, or the same they have the same color of the skin, um, there will be other ways that human beings choose to identify and self-isolate or um, collectively isolate. And for Liberia, it did initially have to do with with ethnicity, but not in the way that it has evolved to. Um, the first plot of land that was designated as Monrovia um, when the settlers went over was actually purchased, and it wasn't even um, it wasn't even contiguous because there was a, a plot of land. And then there was, it was impossible to buy anywhere next to it. So there was another plot of land and you have these colonies that were being set up that were all part of what was considered Monrovia and what later became Liberia. So eventually what you find happening within history is that 
there were desires for expansion and there were negotiations that became very tense. But all of my research has suggested that this narrative of the settlers going in and enslaving native groups, um, it's just not true. And I found actually newspaper clippings of interviews that settlers uh, did when they came back for visits to the United States about how much they were getting paid on farms because a lot of the settlers initially when they went over had to work on farms um, and what the natives were getting paid on farms. And they were getting paid much more. And that obviously is the is where the social stratification goes in. But there was the slavery that is suggested throughout these narratives. It comes from one of our previous presidents. He was, you know, 1920s or so. And he was accused of, he resigned after being accused of uh, shipping contracted labor to the Caribbean. And after this, the UN did a, a, a massive study on what was going on in Liberia at the time and found that what would be considered slavery, which was present in both Americo Liberian and native Liberian households were, you know, people coming in from the interior working in households, and then they were supposed to be schooled or be educated. And so you see instances of massive natural national favoritism for those who were of the settling group but there, there are not instances of, of slavery, certainly not instances of slavery that would compare to what African-Americans were going through in America before coming. And actually, in contrary to that, there were instances of where African-Americans and Native groups were galvanizing to fight British, to fight the French. Um, and of course, that's featured in my novel. And, you know, I mean, there are a lot of, there are a lot of theories as to why this has become so prevalent. You know, people say, well, it's you know, people are just generally uncomfortable with Black progress and Black wealth. And I know that I've always wanted to find a way to explore the nuances of this history while still, of course, featuring and mentioning that there there is national favoritism, there is a system of social stratification, but it just isn't as binary as what has been painted and what is previously con. con- conceived. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it is something that we as a nation are still sort of trying to figure out. There are a number of unification efforts where people are trying to have these conversations that are broad and expansive and that give Liberian history the sort of fairness that it deserves, because very few histories that are are as binary as what Liberian history is painted as. And so... I don't know what the answer is as to why why it's become so prevalent, um, because it, it was a society that worked. It was a society that led the Pan-Africanist movement. There were men during the coup of the 13 cabinet ministers who were assassinated, who were mixed of both native Liberian and American Liberian ancestry. I'm mixed. My mother is uh, of native Liberian ancestry. My father is descendant of American Liberians. And most Liberians are. And so it's just finding ways to to tell a more well-rounded story and give justice to my country's history, right? That's something that I've always been interested in. And you can see those themes in your debut novel as well, and where you have all of these different groups coming together around this story. And 
having read your debut first, I felt like that gave me a background because once I'd read that book, it inspired me to go read nonfiction articles on the topic and mm-hmm. interviews that you did in your publication, um, your your book tour mm-hmm. um, for that. And so coming into this, I felt like I had a general idea going in as opposed to reading about um, a new history that I'd never read about before. And having read that it focuses on three different characters but one of them is a young girl when we first start and this book also starts with a young girl it starts Mm -hmm. um with you and we don't often talk about girls during times of conflict uh girl girl child soldiers women rebels they're usually missing from the conversations uh, around uh, events like this I've been thinking about this a lot in the last six months because we also interviewed uh, Maza Mengiste, and she also talks about women during conflict. And so there were just a lot of different things that I thought uh, the two books went well together, and there was almost like this this dialogue happening, and it's very thought-provoking. Um, but for you, why do you think that is, that women are often left out of these conversations about conflicts? And what can be done to further disrupt those narratives? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the patriarchy is real. Misogynoir is also real, right? Um, You do have, even within um, institutionally racist structures, Black women are so radically disadvantaged. So when you had a lot of these aid organizations and efforts, even within the region, coming over and finding ways to rehabilitate soldiers, um, obviously male soldiers were the dominant Um, but there were very few programs, if any, that catered to, to these, these women who were a part of it. And so I think it's just, it's become habitual to this disadvantage and this erasure of, um, the needs of, of women in those environments specifically you, it's something that was normalized. There was no expectation that, these women needed the amount of aid and support that their male counterparts did because, as you will find in misogynoir institutions, the men are still seen as the head of the home. They're the ones who should be protected. They're the ones who, you know, need to be saved if there are any, you know, salvation efforts. Yeah, it's just, it's evidence of that. And you, you would find that within the efforts that were available for women soldiers or former women soldiers, they all overwhelmingly, at least in my research in Liberia, had to do with family planning, how they would take care or how they could provide supports, both medical and educational supports to the children that they had while they were in combat, but not as much to their psychological well-being. And I thought that that was interesting as well. I mean, it's a conversation that I continue to have with, particularly with um, the the centers that I'm still in touch with in Liberia, because I gone back for maybe about a year and a half, two years, I would spend my time interviewing uh, previous child soldiers. Uh, I would say 50% male, 50% women. And in those centers, in those groups, I would find that the educational, the psychological empowerment, a lot of the rehabilitation, psychological rehabilitation, um, those were programs that the men went through. But whereas the women, it was like, well, how do we support your children? And obviously not disqualifying that as being like essential to their overall rehabilitation is making sure that 
um, the families that were results of these conflicts are provided for, but there, there definitely was a disparity in what was going on in their rehabilitative needs and the access that they had to some of those services. And the very simple answer is that, you know, patriarchal, misogynoiristic thinking is pervasive everywhere. And it's something that we see in Western countries, something that we see in developing nations, something that we see on the continent. These institutional paradigms just manifest in different ways. And this is just another way of of that manifestation. In the middle part of your book, you talk a lot about talking to your therapist and just trying to come to terms with what happened to you as a small child and what happened to your family. And it was, I don't want to give any spoilers for anyone who hasn't read the memoir yet, uh, especially since the last section is just has you on the edge of your seat the entire time. I finished it yesterday and I just sat on the edge of my couch listening to the audiobook, like doing nothing, just like I needed to know, even though I knew how it ended, I, mesmerizing isn't the right word, and I'm going off on a tangent, I apologize, but... no thank you so much thank you for reading because I mean when you're writing when these things are being written you sort of never really you know how you feel about it when you're writing it but then when it's written and packaged it sort of becomes something else and you just never know how what the experience is going to be for a reader for any reader and obviously as we were speaking of before the question of the comparison of novels and memoirs it's that much more personal because you know, when someone criticizes a, a novel, these are characters that you've created. They don't exist. But if somebody criticizes a memoir or doesn't understand it or doesn't have as poignant of an experience with it as you did writing it, I imagine it would be difficult not to take it personally because, like, you are the character and your family's the character. So it's almost seen as, like, an interrogation or, or like, a judgment on on your life or the way that you're able to understand and articulate your life. So I appreciate you for reading it and, and, and thank you for saying that you um, had a, an, a pleasant experience with, with the book. Because then also in addition to that, I've been feeling a lot. I mean, the outside world, there's just so much trauma going on. I'm like, who wants to read about more trauma and more tragedy? But I am coaxed by the fact that, as you said, you know how the story ends. There is a hopefulness in it. And so that, that gives me peace and made me... a um, less critical of, of this process and the fact that I do have to go out into the world with this work at this time in human world, national history, you know. And we'll be back with more from this episode of Reading Women after a word from our sponsor. The sponsor for this episode is us. It's Reading Women Month. So June is our birthday month and all month long, Uh, We are celebrating our birthday by some special events. So we have 10% off in our Reading Women's store on Etsy. And we also have some brand new merch. Uh, We've partnered with Bonfire again to bring you a brand new t-shirt. It has Reading Women across the front and it comes in a wide range of styles, sizes, and colors. We also have a mug for the first time, and I'm very excited about a mug. If you're not a t-shirt person, surely you are a tea or a coffee person or a hot chocolate person. And so we have that option for you as well. And so all of the profits from uh, 
So all of the profits from the store and from our merch goes to support reading women during this tumultuous time. Uh, any money that we receive goes right back into PyCast to keep us going so that we can still share wonderful books by women writers with you all. So thanks to all of you for support. You can also go celebrate over on Instagram with a lot of the giveaways that we're doing over there. And we also have a special bingo board where all the contributors have added different prompts. And so it's a fun thing for you to participate in this month. So that's it. So I will link everything down below so you can go check it out. And thanks to all of you uh, for joining us here on Reading Women for our fourth birthday celebration. You cover your life in such a unique way and the set, the structure of your memoir. And you talk a lot about, or you share a lot about your experience of just coming to terms with your identity as someone who immigrated to the United States uh, when they were a young child. And when we talk about the American immigrant experience uh, and current immigration policy, we rarely see countries in Africa and that relation to that to immigrants from the various countries on that continent. And and so, so for you, from your perspective, having immigrated to America, in what ways do you think Liberian or a broader African immigrant experience is similar to dominant immigrant groups in the U.S.? And in what ways are they different? Yeah, I mean, the similarity would be definitely when you are from outside of the U.S. and you come here by choice, you generally see the United States as the world's emerald city. It's the place where anything can happen. It has incredible amount of opportunity. You can make it and all you need to have is is will and a strong work ethic. Um, because the way that it is painted elsewhere is that you don't face the same discrimin discrimination. It is a truly free country. And I do think that to some extent that's true. You know, I know that some of the freedoms that I have here, there are many countries around the world that are considered Western or developed or progressive, that I wouldn't have those freedoms as a Black woman. But then in other ways, I think some of what becomes traumatizing after immigration for a Black immigrant, for a Liberian African immigrant, is that you realize that, you know, your this view of the Emerald City, it isn't as inclusive for every group. Right. So you have um, some immigrant groups that have some freedoms that other immigrant groups don't. And it's because of this construct of race that is very un unique to the United States. Generally, if you are a white immigrant, you sort of get absolved into what is considered white America. And that's why, statistically speaking, you know, there are white immigrants that, for instance, are that might be undocumented who you know, are not as monitored or as hunted as immigrant groups of other colors. Um, and the same thing to some extent for black immigrants as well, because because America sort of has operated for so long on this binary of black-white, as a black immigrant coming here, you're absolved into um, African-American identity and for some African-American culture because of our phenotype. And so Black immigrant issues are then seen as being synonymous with African-American issues. And that is mostly the case um, because once you have black skin, America does interact with you in a very specific way. But yeah, I mean, I think black immigrants have a very different experience here as immigrants than other immigrant groups. Um, it is somewhat of a stunning introduction once you realize that 
the country that you might have imagined does have a different taste once you arrive. Because what happens is, and I, I was having a conversation actually last week on one of the tour stop, virtual tour stops about this, about how there are many who will sort of choose denial and say, because you you so want that image to remain pristine and you, you don't want anything to happen to this country that you fled to. You don't want anything to happen to tarnish that image because it's that image that contributed to your survival before you arrived because you were looking forward to this place where all these things would happen. And for many, those things do happen. I mean, to be fair, my family immigrated to the United States in 1991 and we had nothing because my parents lost everything during the war. And by 1999 or 2000, we, you know, had, my parents were homeowners in a suburb in Texas and had a really middle-class upbringing actually. But it's, I think, the shift comes in one's identity as being cross-cultural and being Black in America and understanding that those things didn't happen because of America's righteousness as it pertains to race. It, it happened in spite of that, right? And that's, that can be really shocking to experience. And so there is definitely a duality there of still holding dear this country that made so many dreams come true in a country that you relied on for your salvation and for your refuge. And then the realization that the country might not see you as an equal member of its society because of the color of your skin. I read your memoir right after we finished a lot of our reading for Caribbean Heritage Month. And uh, we discussed Lucy by Jamaica Kincaid, uh, which also talks about a woman immigrating to the United States and being seen just as a black woman because of the color of her skin. And like you said, just kind of like American culture just shoves everyone together like that. And um, I also made me think of uh, Behold the Dreamers by Mbue. Yeah. So reading all of these things together, it, it's just really interesting to see all of the different experiences um, that each are unique and should be seen that way. And I feel like you're adding to that kind of discussion in such an important way. And, and one of those ways is how your experience is a little different because, you know, while five members of your family immigrated from Liberia, two of members of your family were born in the United States. So how did being part of a mixed immigrant family affect your experience as a young immigrant? Yeah, I, 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 my brothers, my two younger brothers are the ones who were born in the United States. I saw there was one point, you know, growing up where, we, you know, my family would always make reference to Liberia. My parents would make reference to Liberia. And um, it was a place that at that point they hadn't been to yet. And I realized how isolating it was for them to be a member of this family that so often referred to another place as home. And it certainly changed my experience and helped me understand because I don't see myself as any different from my brothers. Um, you know, I moved here when I was five. And so in the same ways that I have Liberian American sense or Liberian and African sensibilities, I also have American and particularly African-American sensibilities in the same ways that my brother does. And so it emphasized this idea of an international black body 
Um, it emphasized Pan-Africanism, which Liberia represents so well in all of these groups from around the world coming to a place and making it their home. Within our household, there was this division of sensibilities, I would say, in some ways, because they're, they had no reference of Africa, right? Obviously, my parents did whatever they could to keep us tethered to our home culture. But for my brothers, that home culture was very much a very much an abstract. And so it sort of forced us to then begin um, respecting and, and, and looking at American Black culture um, in a more inclusive way and, and sort of understanding that if these are my brothers and they're in our household and there is this sense of, of foreignness to this place that we're referencing, even though we live in the same home, um, I can then only imagine what it's like to my brothers and sisters who have been here for 400 years, right? That sense of isolation and alienation. Yeah. So it's like in, I, I honor that. I honor the spirit of Pan-Africanism. I'm more aware of the isolationism that my brothers and sisters here must feel just based on my experience with my brothers and the conversations that I, I had with them. And actually I dedicated the book to them because of it. <laughs> but yeah, that's definitely the the contribution that being from a mixed household had on me, on my career, on my sense of identity and the way that I viewed blackness and what being black in America means and meant. And if I could read that dedication and you say for Junior and David, whatever you are, I am. Mm -hmm. That's such a, a beautiful way to dedicate it, the book to them. In the middle section of the book, uh, you talk about your experience growing up in Texas and your childhood there, and you share some of the experiences that you had with um, explicit racism during your childhood, such as people following you around a store or some of the things that uh, people would call you. And you also talk about the implicit racism you experienced in your 20s in New York. How did both of those types of racism affect your lived experience as a Black immigrant and also how you perceived America? I think, you know, it took a while for me to even understand what implicit racism was because being raised in a place like Texas where you do, there is, a, it is explicit. You, you know, I, there were Confederate flags on bumper stickers on trucks at my high school and um, you know, you sort of just know you, there's an energy that is outright and bold in many ways. Uh, so you, you, you know where to go. You know which towns you can and can't drive through, even in the 90s and the 2000s. But, but here it was definitely more sinister. And I do think in the Northeast, because of it, it was more hurtful because it's like perceiving that there are these allies and that people understand a certain plight. And then realizing that racism is not something that you, that is just surface level. It is something that is just deeply, deeply ingrained in um, the institutional identity of America. And, and it's in, in its very social infrastructure. And um, yeah, it definitely takes a while to adjust to and even accept because you're used to that sort of transparency and honesty in your interactions and, and knowing off the bat where people stand with you and where you stand with people as someone who was, who came here from elsewhere, but spent as, as you know, my childhood in the South. And I 
think that what it did was it made the idea that you have of this place, you realize that it's as dynamic as where you came from. You know, we were speaking before about looking at America in, or, or looking at our home countries, for me as Liberia, looking at it myopically and considering these binaries that exist and it looking a very specific way. In many ways, I was doing that to America, that they're, you know, good versus evil. It's this land of opportunity. And if someone has something against you, or if you have a sour interaction, you're going to know it right off the bat. But if you stay away from the bad and you work hard, you'll be able to do everything that you want to do and and fulfill all of your dreams. And then I think it's quickly understanding that, no, every place, every home is dynamic in that way. Every home is complex in the way that it's defined and the way that its citizens and its people are, are defined. And that was my biggest learning is that that complexity of home that I, that I yearn for and demand and examinations of Liberia is something that I demand and yearn for and learned, obviously, in my explorations of America as well. It was really interesting to read about your experience in the middle section of the book, trying to come to terms with your identity and find home. And, you know, I live in South Carolina, so many of the culture and traditions of Texas are also part of where I live. (laughs) And so I could see that place in in Texas. But because of your writing as well, you know, you can also see Liberia and you can also see your family. You can see your home in New York and uh, throughout the book in all these different places, you're trying to find home. And I don't want to give any spoilers, but I feel like you grow and you come to terms with what you view as home by the end of the book. But that was such an interesting experience to see your mind and develop through that and and to work through that things. Is that something that came to you while working on this memoir or is it something that you specifically experienced and then wanted to write about it? I think it's both, right? I think it's a little bit of both. Like I, I experienced things and I've been living this or I've been writing versions of this book for so long. I've been writing versions of this memoir and of these experiences for a long time. And it's because and the reason that I've been dealing with this, this, um, you know, wanting to tell and trying to navigate how it was that I would explore the stories because my body has kept a score of everything that's happened. And so it's lived with me, but I would say that there was an instance where I knew that I wanted to tell a little bit about my family, both in, with the war, with racism when I knew that the story was over and the story was over um, or not was over, but the, the book itself, the project had a sense of uh, definition and shape when I returned to Liberia. Right. And that, that doesn't necessarily mean that those things that I experienced during those chapters stopped, but I, it's when I knew that it was time to put, put those things on paper. And then additionally, I would say that, I'm still, even now, if I were to write a book about what's happening outside in the world and how it relates to me or how it relates to my life, there would be aspects that would surprise me. There would be aspects that are perhaps triggered by an incident that I don't know how to give explicit credit to because 
all of these incidents live with me all the time, right? Um, so I, I do think that there's there's nuance in that, if I heard your question correctly. I absolutely loved your book. And so I'm so grateful that you put out this book, this project into the world and, and told your story. And I think it's definitely something people need right now. And it's like you said in, early in our conversation, uh, at the end of the book, there is so much hope. And I think that's such an important part of your story that everything you, your, you and your family went through, that there is hope. Yeah. So thank you for being so brave and putting it out into the world for people to read. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for just, just for reading and, um, yeah, having this conversation, it, 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 it's, it's appreciated. So before I let you go, um, I always like to ask people on the show what books that they would recommend. And I don't know if you would want to recommend other immigrant stories or other um, Liberian authors or maybe from broader Africa or any women writers that you think our listeners would um, enjoy reading. I would recommend right now there's a book coming out actually by a Liberian Ghanaian writer. Her name is Peace Medi, and it's called His Only Wife. And it's coming out actually in September. It's coming out by Algonquin. September 1st is the release. And it's about this um, Liberian woman. or it's a, Actually, it's based in Ghana. It's a Ghanaian woman. She set up in an arranged marriage um, because her husband's family, her Ghanaian husband's family is trying to get get him away from this Liberian girl who they perceive has seduced him and is the root of all evil. And it's so funny, so good. And, um, I can't wait for people to read her work. Is this her first novel? Yes. It's her first novel. Awesome. Well, I will be sure to include uh, a pre-order link to that in our show notes for our listeners to find, but thank you again for coming on the podcast and talking more about your book. Yes. Thank you. So I'd like to thank Wayatu Moore for talking with me about The Dragons, The Giant, The Women, a memoir, which is out now from Grey Wolf Press. You can find her on her website, wayatu.com, and of course, all of Wayatu's information will be linked in our show notes. I'd also like to say a special thank you to our patrons whose support makes this podcast possible. You can also find Reading Women at readingwomenpodcast.com, on Instagram and Twitter at The Reading Women. You can find me at Katie Winchester. And thanks so much for listening.